Hello, welcome to Judge Movie. Um, I'm Alicia. I'm here with... With Ben. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> uh, we're at the London Film Festival 2018. We've um, been watching a few films. Um, this is episode two of our three-part London Film Festival series. A tour? Yeah. Uh, excursion? Yeah. Um, last week... We talked about expectations, anticipations, and now we're back. We're, we're a few films in now. We're going to talk about them. Yeah, we've seen loads of stuff. What was the first thing you saw when you got here? The first thing I saw was Manto. So that was an Indian film about the writer Manto, who wrote during um, the partition of India. He was sent, taken to a lot of obscenity trials, and he's quite an interesting figure. Um, it, was, it was an okay start to the festival. Um, it didn't really set me on fire, but I was, I was happy to see it. Yeah. It was interesting enough. I, I think they used some Manto's uh, stories and integrated yeah. them with his biography. And that stuff was really interesting. Yeah. But a lot of the time it was going through the sort of motions of a, of a biopic, right? Yes, yes. So definitely the way it would go from his life to those short stories, I think. The way it was done, it said it had interesting things to say about inspiration and, like, how, how the creative process works for him. What was the first thing that you saw when you were here? Um, I, the first thing I saw was Paul Dano's Wildlife, um, oh. his directorial debut starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan. Uh, I can't buy Jake Gyllenhaal as a man in the 60s. I just, you know, okay. I've talked about him before on the show. <laughs> uh, I like Jake Gyllenhaal well enough, but I just, I look at him and I see 2018. Sure. You know? Uh, and that, and that, was, but that was the first barrier. Second barrier was this is a movie based on a Richard Ford story that's, you know, nothing that we've really seen before, that we haven't seen before. Um, it's quite cliched. It's kind of dull. The actors are fine in it. Uh, I feel like Paul Dano knows where to sit the camera, but this is clearly a directorial debut, and I think it's getting a little bit more praise than it maybe warrants. It's quite sort of unmemorable, I'd say. Okay. How's Carrie Mulligan? You know, she's fine... Again, I, I find her difficult to buy. I don't, I don't really get her like um, accent work. I don't, really, okay. I don't really get her. But also, you know, she's a staunch Tory, isn't she? So I kind of. Find her. Is she? I didn't yeah. know that. So how would you describe the sort of atmosphere so far? Good, exciting. There's a lot of young people here, which is really mm. good to see. Um, massive queues. I got to the widows at like seven in the morning. And to spend a huge queue, and so I was like right at the front, which cool. Um, what sort of time did you get for that one? I got there at 7.30, and I was fifth in the queue. Um, and then it started to go around the block, so that was exciting. It was definitely a good way to sort of kick off the festival. And there were definitely a lot of young people who were there at the beginning to just really secure their seats, so it's exciting. I think that reached a peak on Saturday with the beautiful boy screening. I, I didn't go to it, but I'd seen that there was just like you know, a huge crowd of shallow babes. <laughs> is, that, is that what they're called? Shalababes. Shalabay? Shalabays, yeah. yeah. I suppose that's what you'd call him. Yeah, so that film's getting really good press. I haven't seen it yet, but like. Yeah, my I saw the trailer and I didn't think it really looked that exciting. Yeah. But it apparently we say otherwise. So. Yeah, I mean everyone's like losing it over those their performances and it. Anyway, this isn't a preview. So <laughs> what we have seen. Um, so in competition is the new Ben Wheatley film. Yeah. Um, 
I saw that, and then I had a little, uh, so that's called Happy New Year, Colin Bursted. Um, it's uh, sort of family, dark comedy, uh, with people like Neil Maskell and uh, Sam Riley. I think it's okay, a total... So returning re- from his other films. Definitely. I think it's a return to form for Ben Wheatley. It was a really welcome surprise, and I talked about it with uh, critic Paul Farrell. Uh, hello, I'm Paul Farrell. I'm a freelance film critic and programmer based in Birmingham. I'm here at the London Film Festival with, with Ben. Hello, Ben. Uh, we've just come out of Colin Burstead. Yeah, what do you think of Ben Wheatley's new, uh, new joint? Uh, but yeah, it's, we, we said it's kind of... It's almost not like a Ben Whitley joint in the sense that when we say when we say joint, I mean obviously the first person we think of is Spike Lee. And for someone to reference their own film as a joint is to have a kind of self-awareness of what their brand is, I suppose you'd say. Um, and with Ben Whitley, it seems to be a sort of not a shrugging off. I mean, it still has the same sort of like style of editing as many of the films have, the kind of holistic sort of psychic editing that a lot of some had. I mean, Sightseers was a big touchstone for this one. He's okay. um, still got the sort of folky elements of it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it seems that he's tried to avoid what's become associated with him as being a genre filmmaker. You, you always hear about sort of new wave of genre filmmakers and Ben Wheatley and Edgar Wright and all that sort of stuff. But I think he uses his reputation actually as a as a tool to you know this escalating tension throughout the movie. And like you were saying, that you felt like you know maybe someone's just going to get stabbed at any point, and it, and it holds up on that. But it's that that puts you into the sort of family mindset, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Like the kind of like this idea that the tension is always underlying. Which is an obvious statement with this film, to be fair. Um, but it's the way he uses music. There's a segment in the middle of the film. Clint Mansell made um, the score for this film, and he uses it very evocatively to fill in the gaps of silence, because it seems to like just sort of swell in and out of the proceedings. So it doesn't really illustrate what's going on. It's not used as kind of like a beat, but you go into these sort of montages, which just start to underline almost the air in the room. Yeah, that's it. It's that feeling of like the. the encroaching drunkenness yeah um, yeah could definitely it's a film that starts to get more and more drunk so to, to briefly explain so having a year Colin Bursted is uh, so over one day an evening uh, Neil Maskell plays Colin Bursted who's set up a uh, New Year's Eve party in a grand manor house for his family uh, where various tensions do arise it's got a supporting cast including Charles Dance uh, who else was there Maskell, Sam Riley's there um, lots of figures from British TV and movies get lots of Game of Thrones people and this is kind of like it's, it's very much like Game of Thrones in the sense that there's this familial it's almost like the dynasty are just falling apart you know and there's people are like colluding with one another in a Machiavellian sort of bid for the throne of the household yes. we're making it sound a lot more epic than it is in the but film it sort of is epic you know you can feel this, this family emotionally yeah for sure like emotionally this it swings very broad it swings like in everyone um but in, the te- in terms of sort of like how it actually presents it, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And it really creeps up close-ups, up handheld photography all the way through. It's like, it's it's like a party, like in the sense... One thing I really love is like the, the, these segments in the film where it's just people outside having a smoke, just kind of social smoking sort of uh, elements of it. But that's where all the shit gets said. Like, <laughs> and in this film, that's very much the case. It's, um, it's very much into its sort of like almost Shakespearean kind of... Um, hubristic sort of 
tragedy amongst all the, the family, except for it's kind of scattershot everywhere. Everyone's getting a bit of the flack. It's not just Iago bringing down Othello. Like, Ooh, that sounds like fun. What, what else have you seen? You saw uh, Thunder Road, didn't you, Jim Carrey? I Carrey's did, yes. I saw Thunder Road, um, named after the Bruce Springsteen song. Um, it's written, directed, and starring Jim Cummings, so triple threat. Um, Doesn't he also have, like, a visual effects credit on it? And... Yes. He's, he's, yeah, he's a very busy guy. <laughs> I was kind of reluctantly going along with this, you know. There's a lot a lot of ego there but I was definitely won over by the end um, It was it's a comedy drama about a young cop whose mother has just died he's going through a divorce his relationship with his young kid is really strained um, but it was really funny and really sad it was this really great tragic comedy and he, he really won me over by the end I was kind of choked up and uh, yeah, that was really special Do you think there is a lot of ego in that project though? No, I think the character's often humiliated, so I feel like, um, no, not so much. Right. And how does it handle your sort of Blue Lives Matter context? I think it does handle it well, but I'm still not sure how it will go over. Um, as I say, I was kind of reluctant to be so on, to, on side with him, but... Um, so no, I think, it, yeah, it just, it's not about that kind of thing, but it's part of it. Yeah. 2018 America, you kind of can't avoid it. Yes. You know, or else you get into sort of free billboards territory, right? That's an interesting comparison. I would say it probably handles it better than that film. The way, it, yeah, just kind of occasionally touch on these issues. But yeah. oh god, it is a tricky one. I don't know. I don't know what the reception will be because yeah. it is it's phenomenal. But I don't know politically. So what else have you been watching? Uh, so I saw a new Coen Brothers film, anthology film, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That premiered at Venice, and um, it seems to have gone over pretty well. I feel like the Coen Brothers have been on a downward slope since The Serious Man, and this one has a few amazing stretches, but other than that, kind of, it feels fairly disposable. Um, so that it's, it's a Wild West setting, and there's a lot of room for them to play in that. Um, so there's stories like the, the titular... That uh, ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is uh, Tim Blake Nelson as a uh, singing, dancing uh, murderer. That's that's really funny. Has some just wonderful like Cohen-esque images, and that kicks it off. And I was like, oh, we're actually like moving in somewhere quite complimentary for their stuff. But then you get, you get uh, stories like there's one about Liam Neeson and a uh, he's a circus master, and his mate's got no arms and no legs, and he performs Shakespeare. And it's just kind of like the most wrong-headed thing they've ever done. It, it really? Kind of really doesn't go anywhere and just, I don't know, it seems sort of vaguely offensive. Um, then there's Tom Waits as a uh, panning for gold. There's no dialogue in that, which is quite interesting. Home Brothers' reliance on dialogue, I think, is um, something that holds them back yeah. up on the circular conversations. Once you've heard it, like, once or twice. That's cool. Yeah, a, dropping their iconic dialogue. Yeah. Okay. Um, that one really works. And then there's an amazing um, story with uh, about the Oregon Trail, which culminates in an actually fantastic action sequence. And then bits like that, you're like, Shit, these guys can operate so well. But, yeah, when it's just stuck with conversations, I just found it annoying. Okay. So as an anthology, does it feel like a bunch of little ideas that they can turn into big ideas, or is it cohesive? Some of them could probably have been stretched out to a whole movie, but 
you know, I don't begrudge them for doing an anthology movie, and it does, yeah, like I'm saying, it's, it is this sort of toy box of Western ideas. Okay. But... Okay, so it kind of lends itself to that. Le- yeah. So it was made as a TV project for okay. Netflix, and then they put it all together as, as, as one film instead. I don't know what okay. decision, but... Um, you can sort of see that. Um, uh, yeah. They're at that kind of stage in their career. They can, you know, they should be doing stuff like this. Yeah. But, um, they should. Yeah, I think they, they, they should be doing stuff where they can, like, just play. But I just don't know that it's all... So Ashes Purest White. What did you think of that? Um, so yeah, we watched Ashes the Purest White, which is a new film from Jia Zhang Ke. Um, again, starring frequent collaborator Zhao Tao. Um, as That's his wife, isn't it? I think yeah, the partners. And so they work together a lot. And she's playing a sort of gangster's mole who, I don't know, the film kind of tracks with her across a long period of time. And to the backdrop of it is this sort of Chinese industry and infrastructure of um, the director's hometown, which I think he's worked with a lot, the idea of change over time. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't really enjoy it at the time. There'll be some amazing, like, bits. It's amazing performance from her. Um, but I found it quite dull. Um, but then afterwards, I was like, there's so much going on, but I couldn't really connect the story about industry and infrastructure to the gangster storyline, I was trying. To, I'm still mulling it over. I'm still trying to piece it together. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's quite an elliptical film, and it's so like measured and it's pacing, but then it builds to these kind of amazing crescendos every so often. And so I was I was with it, even if like bits of it are kind of dull. Yeah. But I felt like it was purposefully kind of doing that slow cinema thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I really loved it. I, yeah, I don't know that it is totally coherent all of those ideas but this kind of deconstruction of the gangster's mole and where is her place if she stops yeah. being a mole what, who who is she in, in Chinese society is kind of yeah. I, I found that really interesting it's a great performance um, yeah I, 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 it's one of the best films we've seen here in a way I think yeah. yeah you were kind of down on it when we came out yeah no I I, I did struggle with it but I think in the end my letterbox rating did go up because I was just like there's just so much there but I'm uh, I wasn't enjoying it it was also the third film I'd seen that day right. so as it began I was like this might not sit well it's been criticised as being kind of a retread of uh, Shanky's other <laughs> themes isn't it uh-huh. um, but I haven't seen any of his other yeah. movies so for me I found it really like interesting what it was saying but I would also like to watch his other movies now to yeah, I'm definitely interested to see more. You know what letterboxed rating went down for me? This girl. Okay. Which, when we came out of, I thought, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, that's a Bruno Dantz uh, film. It's a Belgian movie about uh, a transgender girl trying to navigate life in a new school as a ballet dancer. Uh, I was kind of impressed by its filmmaking. Dantz, a first-time filmmaker. Um, but I felt like it really mishandled a lot of the aspects of her storyline, uh, especially building to this kind of melodramatic conclusion that seemed kind of unfair to to her. Um, and I and I feel like that 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 filmmaking, it, I don't know, it, it didn't overcome the like problems with the film in that performance and that depiction. 
and I felt so that that's really dropped for me in the last sort of week since I've seen it. Um, what did you think of that one? Um, I did quite like it. I felt like yeah, it was very beautiful. I thought the performance was great. Um, so Lara is just so withdrawn. Well, not so much withdrawn, but just so so quiet. Like she doesn't assert herself so much, and we've had a lot of withdrawn teenagers that don't express themselves or can't express themselves. And I thought it was a really good performance from uh, cisgender actor Victor Polster um, to sort of bring that not saying anything, but you can like feel it, feel them not saying anything. I thought that was I really like that in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it did go to quite dark places, very quite I guess you could say melodramatic places, and I'm not sure if those extremes didn't really work for me at the time. No. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently, like who has the right to tell which stories? Mm-hmm. Like who, does someone have maybe a bit more ownership of that story? Yeah. Um, so maybe should have this, I don't know, yeah, should have he sidestepped that to get more trans filmmakers involved? Yeah. Um, I was wondering, I was, part of me was thinking, so uh, Victor Polster, he plays Lara, um, one the can one best actor at can right um, and I, I was and I knew it was a cisgender actor so when I was watching the film I was part of me was thinking like wow he's doing a really good job of acting like a teenage girl and I was like is that something that I should be valuing like oh yeah. am I valuing passing and stuff mm-hmm. like that and that felt like a weird tension like to be praising that to be praising that yeah exactly so that might have been why I was emphasising how well they portrayed him withdrawn teenager yeah. earlier because I didn't want to just focus on mm-hmm. that yeah, passing, right? yeah. yeah. I don't know I th- like I, I, I thought it was like so well shot and so well paced and stuff but I just feel now feel like that was in service of something that like was false so or maybe not false but like yeah it kind of tries to convince you of its realism and how it's camera okay. like, and how intense it is and I do think with the issue of like who has the right to tell what story, like they, well, there should be a little bit of flexibility because you know someone, someone who's done that research and someone's really passionate about that story can still oh, yeah. tell it. And if someone did the color purple, uh-huh. and it's, you know, brilliantly told. Yeah. But it feels like Spielberg also allowed other voices on the project and like he didn't write it. He, yeah, clearly he was like there as a mediator. Yeah. Maybe that's problematic in itself, but. It's similar to that issue that I've been thinking about a lot is um, there are two films out this year about the Anders Breivik Norwegian massacre. Um, there's a film by Paul Greengrass that's come out on Netflix um, about that tragedy. And then there's also a Norwegian film which is a single shot um, done in a single take of a fictional girl based on the real incident, like following her trying to navigate that island during the attack yeah um, and that really got me thinking like why are, they're really similarly named as well yeah yeah and they're both coming out this year and I was thinking like this is so recent as well like who has the right to tell that story which film obviously I'm going to be comparing them saying which film will do better um, and so the Norwegian one Toy is coming out was showing at this festival and the thing it's out the Netflix one is out on Netflix now so I do want to watch them to see this yeah I feel like Paul Greengrass is kind of like reaching at this point to like find another tragedy to exploit. Really? Like style. Cause, 
Yeah, this guy's literally gone between doing like Matt Damon thrillers and uh, very somber uh, reconstructions of, of awful things. Uh-huh. Um, and like Captain Phillips was like a really good thrill ride, but it shouldn't have been like. And it, I feel like he's just so limited at this point as a director that. It's kind of, okay. I don't know what else he has to say, but I haven't seen the movie yet, so yeah. I don't want to comment. And as for like a one take film, like seen those as well is it what is that going to say tell us about like Norwegian society or that event that we don't already know maybe there's like a link to Anders Breivik was a was he like a, he was a massive all right guy yeah like an early kind of well-known person that was part of that so are they going to talk about that have to wait and see that seems like the only real context that would make it have that film now I mean I feel like possibly it could be a cathartic experience to have that film made and seen um, but again yeah we haven't seen it we're just speculating so we gotta yeah. gotta watch them and see yeah yeah so I saw Make Me Up by Rachel McLean uh, I thought that was cool oh yeah <laughs> yeah what category is that in it's great it's in the Experimenter um, it's uh you know what, it's like living in a sort of <laughs> Katy Perry music video or something. Oh, yeah. Um, it's... Um, I don't describe this film without sounding like an idiot. Yeah, it's... Um, so Rachel McLean's like a Scottish artist who makes video installations uh, where she plays a lot of different characters who all uh, dress in quite lavish sort of... Um, Baroque sort of ways. Okay. She often look like they look like um Titan, like Mary Antoinette or something like that. Oh, fun. Uh, and then it kind of you're <laughs> always explore sort of like reality TV and uh, technology and how that intersects with like feminism and stuff. So in this Great. new one, uh, you've got uh, a woman called Siri who wakes up in a weird sort of game show slash prison where. Uh, there's a robot woman whose entire voiceover is just Kenneth Clark talking about women um, okay. and uh, they, she sort of gets put through these weird tests you know uh, shamed for like wanting to eat and stuff there's all these like sausages hanging off the trees so one of the uh, most popular screenings that we saw was Mandy yep it's a new film from Panos Cosmatos. Um, yeah, it stars Nick Cage, and the uh, the press screening that we were at was 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 crazy. Everyone, you know, everyone was having a good time on that Friday afternoon. Yeah. Um, yep. There was cheering. There was cheering. There applause. Was Two bits of spontaneous applause. Yeah. No spoilers. This isn't a spoiler, really. There's a shot of Nicolas Cage breaking a man's neck. And everyone immediately just burst into, into applause. And then the very next shot is him just snorting drugs off of a piece of glass. And everyone applauded again. <laughs> oh, they, they were buying into the cage. How did, did you buy into the cage? I mean, you can't not buy into the cage. It was great, yeah. But um, that was you're coming in the second half. I preferred the first half, really. Right. So this is it's kind of a revenge story um, with Nicolas Cage as this lumberjack. And Andrea Riseborough as the uh, as Mandy, his wife. Yeah. Um, so, so he's got kind of this culty 
Charles Manson elements. Yeah. A strong heavy metal soundtrack from Jonas Johansson. Yeah. And it is a movie of two halves. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to go too much into spoilers, but uh, I did prefer the first half. I felt there was more tension there. But both halves, you know, incredible to watch. It was so rich in imagery. Wow, you've sound. really turned around on it. I, I, I didn't think you were a big fan of it. I was still glad I saw it. It was still beautiful and, like, sounded amazing. Um, performances are, like, you know, all consistently great. I think that's one thing I noticed. So Panos Cosmatos, his first film was Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is, again, visually stunning. But I feel like this is definitely a step up in terms of the acting. It's really it's great in this. Mm. Yeah, the acting's good, but I feel like it's not... It doesn't really say anything about that we haven't seen before from, from genre movies and I, I don't know it's kind of the sort of DMT visuals the, it didn't, didn't really do much to me beyond kind of like an immediate like rush and maybe that's fine maybe you need to like have a beer or whatever else and <laughs> enjoy it with your mates at like a midnight kind of movie but I don't I don't, I don't know I just found, I found it a bit empty found the cage of it all just a bit much uh, I do agree with you. I did find it a little bit. It is very simple. It's like it's a coat hanger. The narrative is very simple. Serves as a coat hanger for all this stunning visual style. But I do think there is some interesting stuff going on. I think so. I've been thinking a lot about Charles Manson. I've been recently listening to you must remember this, uh, the Charles Manson series, and um, there's clear influence on that in the cult and the figure in the middle, Jeremiah Sands. Is that the character or the, the actor? I don't know. A person. Yeah, so he's um, he's great in it, and I think it does dive into that a little bit, like mm-hmm. what that cult is like, what that community would be like, that kind of entitlement, that intensity and weirdness. It's scary. It does. I I, don't know, I found it a lot bit gross. I felt like it um, relies on like female pain as a as a plot device. Um, I did like the sort of phallic elements of it. Were funny, like you know big chainsaw fight where there's one giant chainsaw fighting another even bigger chainsaw uh-huh. um, that one sort of glorious last moment of violence that's kind of like um, well it's it's, it's ejaculatory but whatever I feel like we've seen a lot better in the first um, I don't know I'm sorry I'm still in this phase where I'm reluctant to get too spoilery um, so is but... it all to do with the second half is what's stopping you is that the stuff that you don't like and that's why you can't talk about it or I guess you're right, yeah. And to, yeah, to an extent, yes. Okay, so uh, when in the second half it really becomes genre? The first half is genre too. It's yeah. just a different, slightly different genre. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not gonna, you're not going to get any more okay. out of me. Right, that's fine. Um, and then we've just watched In Fabric. Yeah, literally. Do you want to introduce that one? Sure. So In Fabric is a new film from Peter Strickland, a British director... His other films are Bavarian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy. Yeah, and he did Catelyn Barger as his first one. Okay. Apparently not everyone, everyone knows that. But no. Oh, um, so this is the first Peter Strickland film I've seen. Uh, it's got Marianne Jean-Baptiste. Um, got Julian Barrett and Steve Oram in a small role. It's very, very funny. Um, so Leo Bill's in it. Yeah. Um, and what is, that, what is that movie? I would say it's kind of... Kind of a horror thriller with some funny bits in it. Um, it's very stylized. I guess it's set in the 70s, but not really specifying it. You got some nice touches it's there. It's like a sci-fi 70s, isn't it? Do you think it's sci-fi? Yeah, the the like adverts. I guess 
worse felt sci-fi to me. I guess that has this kind of speculative capitalism critique. Yeah. So that it comes under sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although obviously it's going for more sort of supernatural horror. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it was post horror? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> no. No. Elevated horror. I'm, nothing's elevated horror. <laughs> not even, I'm not going to use that no. phrase. Don't say that. But it was high style. I really enjoyed it. I, yeah, I yeah. really, really liked it a oh, lot. Really, I'm keen to dive into Strickland now. I'm going to watch this stuff. Oh, nice. I mean, this is probably the funniest film that he's made. Mm-hmm. And that, those kind of... Yeah, you've got Julian Barrett from Mighty Boosh. Yeah. Like, it's that kind of humour, that IT crowd sort of humour that I don't really get on with. Okay. Um, but I was fine with the amount there was, but... I think because I like the style so much, it got away with a lot. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a grab bag. It was doing a lot of different things. Yeah, it's great. I think you're right again with the, the kind of sci-fi style in that they had everyone spoke in this weird language and they had like weird phrases for things. Like they didn't just say lunchtime; they said feeding time, and it had this. I think that's yeah. I, I'm not. You know, brush from it, but I think that's what this kind of capitalist yeah, culture critique is. Sort of corporate language, but as if it's like gone through Google Translate, they turn something <laughs> into Spanish and back or something, yeah. and is that that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, which is weird and very strange, like stilted performances alongside more natural ones. I mean, Hayley Squires shows up in a supporting role. I felt like they'd kind of overwritten her character as this sort of nagging, uh, soon-to-be wife for Leo Bill. I didn't. I didn't. I felt like her, the, her dialogue was wrong for how she performs. Okay, I didn't find that. I quite. I didn't just enjoyed her being there. I, I, I think she's great, but yeah. she's. I don't know. I got the impression that she was saying stuff that she, that that character wouldn't say, like they'd overwritten it. I, just, I felt like okay. it was constructed dialogue. I guess that's part of the kind of stylized vibe of it. So. Oh, man, it was really cool. I was just excited now. I'm looking forward to other people saying it and seeing what people think. I, I was already already thinking, like, I wish this was out now so I could use it as a Halloween costume. <laughs> yes, that'd be good. I mean, I feel like people are going to hate it. Do you think? I think, yeah. Why? You're going out of that kind of like, mm, I liked it. I don't know. I feel like people who have got into Strickland through Duke of Burgundy, say, mm-hmm. might expected to be a little bit more serious mm-hmm. um, or a little bit more like art house okay. even though Duke Burgundy is really funny as well um, I don't know I thought I could delve into his characters really well yep. it took left turns in interesting ways it did yeah you know like you're saying it used all this horror language and so, yeah, that's good Kind great of, soundtrack as well. Yeah, that was a great score. Do you know you imagine? I know it's someone on Peter Strickland has a record label. Oh really? So I think it's on that. Oh. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Um what com- were you gonna make a comment about it? Um I was gonna say it kinda gate remind me of the Love Witch. Yeah. Like it's using seventies, very cine literate, kind of using that style. I think it's also very sensual as well, like the way it pays attention because it's you know, two fabrics to costume. To how things look in that way reminded me of that film. Also, I feel like people laugh at the Love Witch because they think it's campy, mm-hmm. and people are kind of laughing at this in a similar way. Yeah. Like I was like, that's not really that funny, but something strange has happened, so people laugh. Oh yeah. But yeah, then it's like yeah, you're no, not I really know. sure if they're laughing at it or mm-hmm. with it or out of awkwardness or something. I mean, this is another like Rook Films joint. 
Ben Wheatley, that's Ben Wheatley's production company. I found it quite similar to High Rise in a way, but in that kind of capitalist critique, but way more successful. Okay. I don't know if you saw that at all. I haven't seen High Rise. But that's based on a 70s novel and is similar, like, 70s nostalgia. I kind of find that that aesthetic a little bit sickly. makes mm-hmm. you think Brexit and it just <laughs> does. Um, I think, while it is part of this one, I didn't find it overbearing. No. It's quite subtle. Like, it's... I don't, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be in the 70s. It just... It felt a little timeless to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't... In fact, there's a sort of shift in the film and I felt like... That was, um, uh, sorry, I must have tried. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if, they, if it had jumped way forward in time. Okay. To now. Yeah. Um, I mean, someone like Hayley Squire seems like a very modern mm-hmm. actor, doesn't she? Um, it reminded me of the Looney Tunes cartoon, One Froggy Evening, with uh, the frog that, like, sings, I'm a baby, Helen. I don't know that. You've never seen that? It's like the best Looney Tunes cartoon. Hello, my baby. Hello, my. I feel like that, I've seen that on The Simpsons, made fun of. Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> cut this out. Um, it's really good. I think it's only the second competition feature I've seen after the Ben Wheatley one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, both have been really solid. Yeah. So I guess that brings episode two of the London Film Festival three-part series to a close. A little grab bag, pick and mix. Of yeah. Movies. On the ground. Yeah. Coffee shop sounds in the background, you know, yes. on the road. <laughs> in the shop, not on the in road. In the shop, yeah. We'll get some car noises in for the next episode, <laughs> and that will be on the road. Yeah. Um, we'll be back in a week with a true wrap-up. We're going to answer those questions that we posed in the first episode, if we can. Yeah. Uh, talk about some of the other movies that we've just caught, and uh, probably get a few more thoughts and feelings. So until then, you can follow us on Judge Movie Pod. On Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Um, also, in the show notes for this episode, we're going to put a link to uh, Letterbox List, which has every film that is showing at the festival, because I think that's a really great way to browse and see what's on there. In a holistic manner, where they're not divided into categories or yeah. strands, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so that will be on judgemoviepod.wordpress.com. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>